Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about policy and ideas. Last week we said Scott Morrison had been in and out of DC and avoided the launch of the impeachment proceedings, but we spoke too soon. (laughs) Now, a phone call between Morrison and Trump is part of the impeachment inquiry, so that gives us a chance to have another look at what is going on there. We'll also be looking at the legalisation of marijuana possession in the ACT and mark... Uh, somewhat differently perhaps to what the hosts are doing, the 70th anniversary of the establishment of the People's Republic of China. Then in our wonderful Books and Culture segment, uh, we'll be looking at books like Napoleon Chagnon's Noble Savages. Chris Berg will review his own book. Uh, (laughs) We have a book of political cartoons, which will make for a great podcast segment. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, And we reflect on the debacle that is and was the AFL team Greater Western Sydney. Uh, which make a nice bookend to what Zach Gorman did last week with the uh, Canberra Raiders. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined today, as always, by my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. Hello, Scott. Also from RMIT University, academic Aaron Lane. Good morning. Great to have you back, Aaron. And finally, our esteemed director of research, Daniel Wild. G'day. A lot to live up to with that. Esteemed. 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 Don't let us down, Dan. Don't lose your esteem. (laughs) What is it? Uh, They shall grow in our esteem. Do not forget this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au and see if you can join or donate. And if you're on the app, do log in and give us a review and make it a good one. It all helps in the rankings. Uh, So... As I mentioned last week, we looked at the impeachment briefly, but uh, it's still developing and uh, and it is quite complex. That is that is right. Uh, last week we joked that you know if you thought Brexit was hard, then welcome to the impeachment. Um, the quick recap um, for those who haven't been following it closely, or at least just to establish exactly what's happened so that we can debate the virtue and um, uh, disvirtue of this. So on July 25, Donald Trump spoke to the president of the Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky. That phone call, the transcript of the phone call, um, sparked a whistleblower complaint, which Congress was trying to get a hold of. We now have both the transcript of the phone call, or not quite the transcript, a memo that is a quasi-transcript of the phone call and a um, and the text of the whistleblower complaint, which is pretty lightly redacted. Um, in the phone call, Donald Trump asked for asked the president of the Ukraine two things. The first thing was to investigate the firm CrowdStrike, which he seems to believe is holding an image of the Democratic National Committee's email server and is holding it in the Ukraine or Ukraine. And second, to work with Rudy Giuliani, who is his personal lawyer, and the Attorney General Bill Barr to investigate Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden for Hunter's work in the Ukraine and how Joe Biden responded to this. Um, This, of course, has sparked just a massive, massive amount of um, political energy and uh, work and um, partisan backbiting and attacks and so forth in the United States. But I see that as the really essential facts. Everything else is spinning off this, um, this transcript of the phone call and, of course, the whistleblower complaint that it sparked. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give what I think is the basic case why this is a serious problem and why it deserves to be continued to investigate. And Dan, I might ask you to respond because I know we have different views on this one. So I think to ask, to use the president's foreign policy power 
to ask or demand that an ally, particularly a small ally and one which is completely reliant on the US alliance, to launch an investigation into his political opponent, his primary political opponent, is a clear and unambiguous abuse of presidential power, even if there's none of the things that a lot of people are talking about in the US. There may not be explicit quid pro quos. They may not, um, uh, it may not have anything to do with the Ukraine. I think it's just really clear that under any regime, under any political party where the president uses his foreign policy power to, um, uh, to launch investigations or ask allies to launch investigations into his political opponent is an unambiguous abuse of presidential power. Um, Dan, what is your take on the impeachment proceedings so far? <laughs> uh, well, I couldn't disagree more uh, with that. There's a lot to unpack. So uh, it's important we go through what was said and what was not said. So... The transcript, uh, if you read the transcript of the phone call, there's no quid pro quo, there's no demand that any dirt is dished on Joe Biden. What Trump is trying to do, and he said this back in May um, in public to the reporters, uh, to the press, was he's going to work with Great Britain, Ukraine and Australia to try and help uh, to get to the bottom of the Mueller probe. What happened? Why was there an investigation launched by the US government against a sitting president? So he's trying to get to the bottom of that, which is the right thing to do. Um, The... Related issue with Joe Biden is he's not interested in um, finding information about Biden out in the context of 2020. What happened with Joe Biden and his son was um, there were allegations of corruption that Joe Biden had engaged in when he was vice president um, under Obama about how he had used um, his position and links with Ukraine to help enrich his son. Now, Joe Biden bragged about getting the attorney general of the Ukraine fired Uh, via the threat of withholding aid to the Ukraine um, because uh, the Ukrainian Attorney General was investigating the allegations of corruption of Joe Biden and his son. Now, that is the real story here. It's the corruption of the Obama administration and of Joe Biden, of the Mueller probe, which was shown to be uh, completely baseless without any fact that there was no Russian corruption or no Russian collusion in the 2016 um, election. The second thing to note is the whistleblower is not a whistleblower. Okay. The whistleblower, if you actually read the whistleblower's the, this, report. The, when we say whistleblower, it was just like someone came out and said there was this phone call that you should look at. Is that no, it? no, he went through, as we understand, no, there's, he, there's a whistleblower procedure that yeah, he went but, through. Yeah, but I mean, there's two, two important things. Okay. This is the most important point in this. Uh, so this is a, a, an unclassified version of the whistleblower's um, complaint. He says... Uh, or he or she says, multiple White House officials with direct knowledge of the coal informed me that. This guy doesn't know anything. This but is I, second I or third hand information. But we don't information. need that. But we, we no. now have the first hand information, no. which is the transcripts of the phone call. The, yeah, but the transcripts of the phone call show that there's nothing. No, the transcripts no, 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 show no, there's absolutely, absolutely no quid pro quo. No, so my argument and the for second, impeachment. The second point, I'll just make the second yeah. point here with the whistle, because the whistleblower is what kicked this all off, and, and then they had um, a Senate, uh, sorry, House uh, committee. Uh, hearings into the whistleblower complaint yeah. okay so that's why this is important now they changed the laws about what a whistleblower is only a few months ago to allow this kind of second-hand information you used to have to have direct first-hand information or something to be protected as a whistleblower this whole thing is a complete setup it's another attempt by the deep state to undo the results of the 2016 election whether it's to do with the russia probe whether it's to do with the illegitimacy of the electoral college they're going to keep going and they're going to keep going no matter what to try and undo the 2016 election. There is nothing to this whatsoever. No, but I, I, don't sorry, think so you, I don't think you've engaged what I consider to be the sole and precise grounds on which 
a president should be. I'm not saying that he should necessarily be impeached, but I see that the process of an impeachment inquiry is the right response to this. When you use the president's basically unlimited foreign policy powers, completely unlimited, um, uh, to demand that an ally who is completely reliant on your support to investigate his political opponent, and not just any political opponent, but his primary challenger well, I th- I for think the presidential I think election. you're putting the case a bit high, you know, in, in that th- there was no demand as such. There was no, you must do this or else this will happen. But um, Joe Biden did. Um, c- correct. <laughs> Contrasted um, to that. And, and the, the, the other point to make is is um, being characterised an, as an exercise of, you know, the, the president's powers. It's probably better characterised as an exercise of the president's foreign policy persuasion in that um, he's uh, got the number of uh, his counterparts and his counterparts will pick up the phone uh, when he calls. Um, but uh, it's it's not like he's exercising uh, any sort of actual presidential power that he's been invested with. He's simply having a conversation with someone. Yeah. But the presidential power is precisely that, which is to manage foreign policy alliances. That might be political power, but it's not, it's not power in the legal sense. No, no, I've got a question to Dan, because there's something you said then that you didn't quite close the loop for me. So, as you say, uh, Trump's been quite open that he's going to get to the roots of why the Mueller probe came about and why, what the FBI was up to. That's been quite open. And as I, as I said at the top of the show, that's how Scott Morrison's now involved because, amongst other things, he wants to get to the bottom of, and I think a lot of us do, uh, the, the conversation uh, from Alexander Downer uh, that uh, allegedly sparked a lot of this about uh, alleged collusion now found to be not collusion with Russia during the campaign. But you said that the Ukraine, the request of the Ukrainian president was somehow tied up with that investigation. I don't see, I don't understand, I literally don't understand the link between Ukraine and Mueller. Well, there's involved, what Trump said back in May was that he was going to get his attorney general to work with Ukraine, Great Britain and Australia. Um, with regards to the Mueller probe. Now, I don't know the specifics of Ukrainian government involvement in the Mueller probe, but the point is that Trump is... Yeah, so that's that's, that's my point. I do know a little bit. So there is this suggestion, there is a um, theory on the internet that apparently Donald Trump believes that um, the the crowd strike that did the investigation into the Democratic National Committee's email servers... Um, is connected to Ukraine and has Ukrainian people on the board, and therefore it's believed that um, that that um, server is either held or a copy is held in in the Ukraine. But uh, to and, be honest, and, and I so don't this think guy, this guy who was fired, might otherwise have brought this information to light and shed, therefore shed light on the Pot- roots of the. No, 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 no. So it's actually not. To, those are two separate things. They just ha- both happen to be in the U- in Ukraine, as I understand it. Nonetheless, nonetheless, I am a hundred percent with Dan on the point that it is completely legitimate for the United States president to um, uh, to pursue that sort of line of investigation. It's not targeting a political opponent. It's nothing like that. It's following a investigation that his own Department of Justice is running and Bill Barr, the Attorney General, being involved in that is, um, is legitimate, which is to bring it to the Australia story. So the New York Times had a, a big story yesterday or 
four hours ago or everything's going so fast, who knows what's happened. Um, we're, we're, they pointed out that Donald Trump had asked Scott Morrison recently to investigate how the Mueller investigation started with, um, uh, and the key thing of course here is the famous or infamous or something um, uh, drinking session that Alexander Downer had with George Papadopoulos that may have kicked off the whole Mueller investigation in the first place. Now to my mind that is that is a complete beat up. That is absolutely fine. Donald Trump is completely allowed and completely within his rights as president to ask for assistance in current Department of Justice inquiries, which this absolutely is. Yeah, because Downer at the time was was High Commissioner. He was an official of the Australian government and the information that he reported back to Australia then found its way to the FBI, which then launched the inquiry that ultimately led to Mueller. So it's quite yeah, reasonable. No, no, it, it, and it, as Dan says, and, and, and the FBI probe was part of the deep, deep state trying to find yeah, a way to overturn a, the election. So it's, ever since day one after the election, the... The Democrats and their and the media have just been trying to undo the results, and this is just another example of that. I just want to throw out another piece of information when, <laughs> when it comes to no, when it comes to the transcript and showing how bogus it is, and everybody knows it's bogus and there's nothing in it. So Adam Schiff, okay, Adam Schiff is, is a Democratic representative from California. He's the chairman of the U.S. Select Committee on Intelligence. Now they held a, a hearing into the whistleblower's complaint, and he gave an opening statement to that, in which he completely made up what Trump said. He just made up all yep. this out of complete thin air because the transcript didn't say what he needed it to say in order to pin Trump down. And I'm going to read some of this out just so you know how ridiculous this is. So this is, this Adam, is, Schiff's, so this Adam, is Adam Schiff's opening testimony characterising what happened on the call between Trump and the Ukrainian president, even though we have a transcript of what was actually said between Trump and the Ukrainian president. He said, and so what happened on that call? Zelensky begins by ingratiating himself and he tries to enlist the support of the president. He expresses his interest in meeting with the president and said his country wants to acquire more weapons and for us to defend itself. And what is the president's response? Well, it reads like a classic organised crime shakedown. Shorn of its rambling cam uh, character and in not so many words, this is the essence of what the president communicates. Which in of not course, so words. In, yeah. yeah, in words, <laughs> I am making this up. This is what he says Trump said, which he never said. We've been very good to your country, very good. No other country has, been as, has done as much for you as we have. But you know what? I don't see much reciprocity here. I hear what you want. I have a favour from, from you. I'm going to say this only seven times, so you better listen good. I want you to make up dirt on my political opponent. <laughs> Understand? Lots of it. On this and on that, I'm going to put you in touch with people, not just people. I'm going to put in touch with uh, Rudy Giuliani. You'll love him. And he goes on and on and on. Right. So he, this is made up. Trump never said any of these words. This is the chairman of the um, Intelligence Committee in the House making up things that no, Trump that's, never said. That, that, and that's, that's fine. And that, that, well, it's, that not, it's not fine. No, sorry, sorry, no, it's not, the, I'm not suggesting that If the that transcript no, had any validity to it, why would he make up? Why would he make this up? You I, would just I think rely the on the transcript. The, the, the transcript is really clear that he is asking a favour. He's asking two favours. Now, whether it's a quid pro quo or not, I actually don't think is material. I don't think that um, on, uh, it needs so, to be so, a quid pro quo so every, for it to be a serious problem, so even if every it's not time, an impeachable offence. So every time a foreign leader asks another foreign leader for something... To that's, investigate that's, that's his political offense. opponents. Because yes. of allegations of corruption about how he enriched his son when he was vice president. Do we I mean, really, come do, on, do, which do we, one is... Anyway. <laughs> which was the bigger deal? And by the way, you're, you, you were making the case for impeachment and now you're saying it's a serious problem. Well... No, no. A serious it, problem is it, is it a serious problem or is it impeachable? No, I think it's worth an impeachment inquiry. I don't know whether it's a. Well, it's not. A, I mean, look, well, what surely is, then what, you say that Joe, like the the situation with Joe Biden, should have been seriously investigated. Absolutely. So this is one of the things that I I um, 
have uh, th- this is this is the framework that I'm coming in with, and I'm very influenced by some of the ideas coming out of um, the Cato Institute on this. There isn't enough impeachment. There are so many serious violations of the American Constitution by the presidency under both sides. We should be, or the United States um, uh, Congress should be impeaching much more than they do. It's obviously the case that there's been a massive growth in presidential power. There's been a massive delegation to the president um, uh, and his or their authority. It's a serious problem we should be impeaching where a lot was, more things where were these arguments i made them but i made them but i made them no but by, by the national <laughs> review and the cato's of the world well, where were know. they under obama no, no, I mean, it's Cato, only trump Cato absolutely they are running was. this no, is no. an anti-trump not a principled constitutional point this well, is a part the, of the, the, the one i'm trying to make is trying to nullify the results the one that i am trying to the one i am trying to make is i think there should be a lot more impeachments and this is absolutely a clear instance that there should be an impeachment or this an is, impeachment inquiry. This is oh. not clear. Uh, it's just This is a political hit job of someone in the Oval Office leaking, someone from the deep state leaking to a whistleblower who had no first-hand account. There was no pre quo, quo. Um, there was no favours asked or done. The real corruption here is of the leaking underdone, uh, being undertaken in the Trump White House by the bureaucracy under Trump and by Joe Biden when he was vice president. That is the allegations of corruption. To, to get to the political point, um, what about just the political reality of this? I mean, yeah. so to, to your point, Chris, you know, we should have more impeachments and we should hold the president to you know more accountable. And I, I understand that point, but. Uh, I guess to push back on that slightly, um, the the House can do whatever they like, um, but ultimately it's going to have to be passed through the Senate. They're never going to get that, ever. Um, and so, you know, wh- why go through this sort of chaos and, and chaotic process um, if it's if it's really just that's what it's about. It's about whipping up dirt. It's about slinging mud. No, that, that's absolutely um, right. And so it, it, it doesn't actually get to an outcome. So, so the Democrats have made a tactical decision here that may have serious strategic, may may damage their um, uh, chances in the 2020 election because suddenly instead of talking about, you know, the the wonderful plans they have for healthcare and welfare and government spending and higher taxes and all that sort of thing, they're being distracted into talking about about Donald Trump. But that's a strategic thing. But but that actually undermines exactly the point you're making though, which is if you're going to live in a world where Presidents are getting impeached every second week, you know, as a sort of a running commentary on whatever they've done, a u- which, yes, is, which is the Cato world, argument. Yes. Well, <laughs> then, then this present situation just proves that it would not never be anything other than a political circus. And, I just want to. I, wanna, I is, just want to test high, this high world constitutional, first. <laughs> high constitutional grounds. D- Dan, how do you how do you see this feeding into the twenty twenty election? It'll keep going. So um, the the Democrat the the Democrats have admitted they can't beat Trump. And so they're going to try and remove him from office through non-democratic means. So, it, like I said, it doesn't matter whether it's Russia, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's the Electoral College is bogus. When this goes away, there'll be another thing. So this is going to keep riding. And they want to tie Trump up with this and suck all the oxygen out. So Trump gave a great speech to the UN. That got no oxygen because of this, um, because of this particular issue. But more broadly, it shows that the Democrats have been completely hijacked by their radical um, constituency with the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez types. Um, and they're playing to that base. It's basically that group that is running, I believe, the legislative agenda of, or lack thereof, of the Democrats. And the, the, the issue is that the problem the Democrats have is they've promised to their base that they were going to get Trump, 
they, they promised um, for two years that there was corruption and collusion between Russia, and that's been completely removed. Now they're having to go to the next step. So they are really they're wedded. just working their way around the map. Yeah, no, they'll keep going. <laughs> they, they've got they'll have yep. another three or four grenades. We're going to Belarus. We're going. To <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll just keep going. They'll, they'll never stop. This this will keep going until twenty twenty four. <laughs> Just to jump in on that, I was um, I was scrolling through Twitter uh, yesterday and, and found this tweet from Maxine Waters, um, who's Congresswoman from uh, California, a Democrat, uh, and on the left. Uh, she's been in Congress for a long time, uh, and she says impeachment is not good enough for Trump. He needs to be imprisoned and placed in solitary confinement. You know, but for now, impeachment's the imperative. I yeah. mean, it's it's just. It's yeah. ludicrous. Yeah, the, absolutely. The, these are the same people who said how terrible the lock her up chance were. <laughs> closer to home, closer to home to a uh, much less uh, impactful jurisdiction, <laughs> the Australian Capital Territory. It is the first Australian jurisdiction to legalise the possession, use, and cultivation of small amounts of what they're calling cannabis. It was marijuana when I was at university, but it's cannabis nowadays. Chris Berg, what's happening there? I'm embarrassed, Scott, that you didn't give the segue that you could have given, which was, you know, Washington, D.C. has also legalised cannabis too. Now let's talk about what's happened in our capital. Well, but think, anyway. I think the link is if you're going to live in these kind of cities, you need it you, to actually get through something. the day. Yeah. So, as you say, um, last week the ACT became the first Australian jurisdiction to legalise cannabis use and not just use and possession but a small amount of growing. Uh, what's described as a small amount of growing, two plants per person, I'm not quite sure... Um, how much that actually gives you. Um, cannabis, however, is still a prohibited substance under federal law, and I'll ask Aaron to comment on that in a moment. But the, the, um, there are some caveats to this new cannabis legal change. You can't use it in public. Um, if anybody has travelled through the United States recently in um, California or D.C., you can smell the marijuana basically everywhere. Well, that won't be the case or theoretically won't be the case in the ACT. Can't use it around children. It can't be stored in an area accessible to children. And my favourite caveat, it can't be grown in a community garden. Which, which apparently was Wasn't a, that was a big, <laughs> which was a big concern. Now, now, I mean, this is this is a um, uh, this is a big step on the face of it. But um, to be honest, in most Australian states and jurisdictions, we have actually been moving for a long time towards what I call sort of functional decriminalisation, which is that if you're going to be if someone is picked up with small amounts of a drug like cannabis, not heroin or um, anything like that, then you're very likely just to be let off with a warning or um, or it would be used to um, get you on a more serious crime or so forth. Um, uh, but I might, I, I've, I've been talking, Aaron, to you a little bit about this and you, you're a little bit more informed, um, particularly on the issue about the conflict or the potential conflict between state and federal laws because it is still illegal at a Commonwealth level. It is. Uh, so there's some there's some federal provisions um, uh, in relation to drugs that you might expect. Um, uh, but it's it's difficult. Um, there's a further layer of complexity to this because it's the ACT rather than, say, Victoria. Um, you know, Victoria's a state. Um, it has um, full jurisdiction over its own, uh, its own powers. Um, and so whereas the ACT, um, uh, up until uh, recently, I think it was 2014, uh, the, the Commonwealth actually had a veto power 
uh, over legislation. Um, so that the the executive, that is the the ministry uh, of the federal parliament, could um, uh, simply sort of strike down laws. That that, that power doesn't exist anymore. Um, but there's still a power for the Commonwealth Parliament to override laws uh, of territories and curb their self-government. So we we saw that uh, in in the 90s with the euthanasia debate. Uh, we saw that um, they, they override the Northern Territory. That's right. Euthanasia um, And in a, in addition to doing that, they also made it so that the territories couldn't pass laws on that, so they couldn't do it again. And I, I'm pretty sure that applied to to the ACT. So look, th- there's a um, th- th- there's a few different ways I, th- I think this this could go um, in in terms of that conflict. Um, There's a good piece uh, in The Age this week by uh, a colleague of mine, Jared Bartle, um, and uh, he's picked up a provision that I actually didn't know about, and and so I'm grateful for him pointing this out, which is that there's actually a defence under the Commonwealth Crimes Act that says if something is lawful under a state or territory, then that is a defence to a federal prosecution. Um, So... Uh, th- that's that's another level of complexity, I think, um, to to this discussion. Um, but to get back to your original point, Chris, um, about the the functional decriminalisation, in my limited experience of criminal law, at least in this state, um, uh, personal possession um, uh, and, and personal consumption is um, practically never. Um, prosecuted um, in, in terms of marijuana. It might be for other other drugs, um, but um, you know, if if police uh, were a- attending a premises and um, discovered you know some uh, some drugs for you know for personal use, so unlikely that that would be actionable. Um, and that, that's an exercise of police discretion. It, it's, it's not that you couldn't action that. It's that the police have decided, well, you know, that's not the serious issue here that we're that we're worried about, um, and we're not going to turn people into uh, into criminals um, if if we don't have to, and, and we're not going to chew up uh, the resources, you know, because it, it does um, cost a lot of money, of course, to prosecute people and, and take people through the courts, and, and then to deal with them on the other side. Dan, what, how, what's your take on um, the ACT's move? A um, bit of an, as Aaron describes, in practice, probably not much of a practical impact. Um, I'm interested in your point about police having discretion over um, what they consider to be a serious crime and not. Is mm. that normal? Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, it is. Shouldn't and, be. <laughs> and, it's just a weird, it seems like a weird thing. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, to, to, to give an example, and, um, you know, so... The law is whatever it is on the day. Yeah, depending. It's kind of like mood. AFL. Then it's well, just an umpire <laughs> comes up uh, prior prior opportunity. You know, prior opportunity isn't actually a rule. It's just made up. Right, right. It's just like it's, you know, well, we can get into that. We will the, get into the, that. The, <laughs> into the footy later. But uh, you know, no, it's 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 uh, it's it's absolutely the case where um, the, the police get to decide. Um, what actions they bring and what they don't. And, and that's just the nature of a system where we've got um, public prosecutions mm. in that, um, you know, when, when you've got uh, a resource that's limited, you know, they've got limited budgets, they've got limited man hours, they need to choose the rabbits they go after and the ones they don't. Mm. And sometimes um, providing people with warnings and those sorts of things um, are much more effective in terms of policing um, in that, 
you know, if they, if they get that warning and, and people stop doing it, well, that's that's actually, you know, probably good for everyone. Um, so, yeah, th- there's a huge amount of discretion that goes on in the charges that are brought and the ones that are, are ultimately sort of prosecuted. Um, something that you tend to find just on, on a broader sense is that the, the police might um, charge people with a raft of offences and that will be a discussion between the defence and the prosecution about which ones might be pled to and which ones might be withdrawn. I mean, we, do, we, we, we are sort of ducking around the issue of whether or not this is desirable. I mean, the, the, uh, I mean, the, the harm issue with, with marijuana, particularly with um, uh, the more intense forms in which it can be found, um, even, even the, the plants, as I understand it, are much, much more powerful uh, in terms of the active ingredients than they were you know, 30 or 40 years ago and, and there are demonstrated links to psychosis and, uh, you know, it, ca- it, can, it can ruin lives. Um, f- so there are genuine See, harm issues there. So that, that's, that's usually the argument against crossing that boundary from decriminalisation to active legalisation. And, and in some ways, um, I almost... Because, you know, whatever happens in the ACT, you know, whatever... In some ways, I feel like I wish it was more like Colorado just so we could find out what it does actually look like. Yeah, look, so I'll jump into that. And um, so the cannabis... So is it too dangerous? So there's two ways to um, uh, tackle that question. First of all, is it too dangerous relative to the things that are already legal? And it's obvious that um, uh, tobacco and alcohol are... um, uh, are dangerous drugs in lots of different ways, but they are legal. And certainly, um, certainly, alcohol is, and tobacco is um, being cracked down um, as we speak, which is a um, problem. But we will criticise that on nanny state grounds. So um, we think that sh- people should have the right to make those sorts of choices. Or is it um, uh, is it just an inherently dangerous drug? And there, the evidence about marijuana and schizophrenia is complicated. And it's complicated because there's a clear relationship between marijuana use and schizophrenia and other psychoses. And what I'm doing is I'm looking at a report, a, a US government report, actually, published in 2017, The Health Effects of Cannabis and Cannabinoids, um, that basically found that there's, there is this relationship. They don't know which direction the causality goes, but there is also a really clear relationship between if you've got a genetic risk for schizophrenia, you are also likely to use cannabis. And you can understand. Yeah, yeah. it's a classic. It's just, just like some so, genetically, so some people are more predisposed yeah, to it's, alcohol. It's a chicken, but it's precisely the same as alcohol. And I just don't see any argument for um, criminalization of these sorts of drugs that you couldn't just immediately turn around and apply to alcohol, which we would reject immediately on the grounds that that would be an aggressive nanny state attacking people's liberties. Well, you, could, you could also say, though, that. Um, that's no reason to make it worse, right? You could say that uh, tobacco. No, but, you but could no, say no. that tobacco and alcohol are bad, but that doesn't mean that we need to compound the situation by also bringing in more bad substances. No, no, no. So, but but also we would be getting benefits in the form of liberty, which is the freedom to decide what we do with our own bodies. Yeah, sure. But then why not heroin and MDMA? And well, I'm willing to have that debate, but um, uh, but in in that context. So, but where do you draw that? So, but either if you're having like a rationalist approach where it's like, well. We allow some substances like alcohol and tobacco, we allow, so therefore we have to, on the same grounds of principle, uh, we have to allow marijuana. Where's the line? Yeah, I actually don't think there. I mean, I'm, think line, I'm, explicit, yeah. I'm explicitly um, and have been in the past uh, supportive of legalization of all recreational drugs in that context. But I don't think it's as hard as you're 
presenting. I don't think you have to be for the legalization of all sorts of drugs to say that drugs like marijuana, which are less dangerous than um, drugs we have already legalized, that that's a that's a clear case yeah, but look, for well, legalization. Yeah, I, well, look, my position is incoherent then because I do make a distinction between drugs because someone who's completely out of it, having you know just just been bonging on all day. When you meet them on the tram, it's a completely different proposition to someone who's off their head on ice. Yeah, no, no. You know, when, you, when you're cruising through Richmond and... But, the, uh, but this goes down to that relative harm. And you're right. You're right. Well, well, the, at uh, one the stage, harm is to everyone around them. At, at one stage... At, Dan, you're absolutely right. At one stage, unless you go either full legalisation or full um, illegalisation, you, you're, we are drawing lines. We yeah, are drawing yeah. arbitrary and, lines. And there's, there's never any sort of coherence to these these arguments, I think, you know, in, in terms of the, the where, where the policy actually hits the ground. I mean, in, um, you know, the, the drug injecting room in Richmond, um, uh, I, I don't think you can light up a joint um, in there. Um, you know, but you can and, inject yourself and, in heroin. And, and, and you, you certainly can't have a drink of alcohol and you can't smoke a cigarette inside. Um, but yeah, you can you can shoot up, no worries. And so it's uh, but presumably I, they have Wi-Fi. I, I, I yeah, well, <laughs> I, I always find these these sort of discussions are fraught with um, yeah. How do you how do you get con- consistency in a policy sense? Because um, it just it just never seems to be the case. Yeah. I have a, a, a bit of a different perspective, which you can just rely on what we've always done. So you can just say, well, we have alcohol, we have tobacco, and that's just how what we've always had. That's what we will have, and there's no need to come up with a kind of so-called principle argument it's just but this is all, what we've allowed but, but we've always had high tax rates we've always had too much regulation but we've always no, had too, not, much, too many it. restrictions on freedom of speech I, 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 I think it's I, a little bit different I, no, think, it's it, a, it, it, I it, think it's a little bit of a different argument <laughs> but I think there's also the like the normative effect as well like I'm sort of uncomfortable with the idea that um, that uh, when you legalise something it is sending sort of a normative message that it's okay to do and ultimately, it's up to the individual involved whether or not they want to do it. But I'd be much more comfortable when um, sending a message that you, know, you shouldn't be taking drugs and living a life on drugs, or as Scott says, bonging on. Yeah, on I mean, the tram. A, I mean, a tolerant <laughs> a, a tolerant decriminalisation was was basically the you know the, the situation in Australia for twenty or thirty years, well, and, and 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 so you do actually wonder what's driving the ACT to. Well, to funnily change, enough, funnily enough, the the um, uh, Victorian government and I actually haven't checked have done precisely that, which is um, ban bongs. So you can't bong on on the train, not because of the marijuana, but because of the bong. Because um, they're worried you might put tobacco in it. Might- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like... Um, no, and, and, and that's, and that's, that's and, and, and that's the irony about all of this thing is, is we've pushed tobacco um, completely... Uh, you know the, the consumption of tobacco now. You you, you can't you can't yeah. smoke on the street. You can't smoke anywhere uh, ex- except your own backyard. And so for I, now, you know, for now. <laughs> but you can grow it in a community garden. Um, Sadly, you, you can, can say <laughs> what you like around the kitchen table as well. I, I don't reckon you could grow no, it. No, you couldn't. No. Surely there's there's laws on cultivating tobacco. Yeah, well, I hope there that. would be. <laughs> yeah. and, and good luck trying to grow anything in the ACT in the middle of winter. Um, now. Uh, today is an auspicious or actually a, a tragic day, depending on how you look at it. Um, are we marking uh, over, the, over this sort of 48-hour period the 70th anniversary of the declaration of the establishment of the People's Republic of China as the Chinese Communist Party claimed victory in its uh, very, very long uh, civil war uh, against the nationalists uh, and before that the, um, uh, the Japanese invaders. Um, so, how do we mark this, gentlemen? Well, I'll tell you how the Chinese government marked it. So, um, it did so with a extremely 
expansive military parade through Tiananmen Square. Um, President Xi Jinping stated that no force can shake the status of this great nation. So if you want to know what the Chinese Communist Party wants to think of the 70th anniversary, it's that they are incredibly powerful. Um, we can talk about Hong Kong in a moment, um, but they also spoke, or the president also spoke about the, um, quote, peaceful development of cross-state relations and continue to strive for the complete reunification of our country, which is obviously a reference to um, Taiwan. Looking, uh, so I, I as, as listeners know, I spend a bit of time in China and I've got a few people on WeChat. I have a copy of WeChat so that the Chinese Communist Party can read my personal Twitter, uh, my personal text messages. Um, and looking through WeChat with people I've That's met kind in- kind of you. It, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's helpful. It, <laughs> they're gonna do the surveillance anyway. You might as well, you know. Don't 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 waste your labour. Looking through WeChat, um, uh, uh, everybody was extremely um, uh, positive about the uh, 70th anniversary and um, uh, wonderful wishes to the motherland. Donald Trump gave <laughs> congratulations on Twitter. Um, congratulations to President Xi and the Chinese people on the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. This is, of course, a totalitarian dictatorship with an ongoing, um, uh, basically, a cultural genocide against its. Muslim minority, um, but it's also a incredibly powerful one and one deeply connected into the global trade networks and the global economy. Dan, how should we think about the 70th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party's control? Uh, well, the main thing to note about the the control and their military display is clearly China is a you know rising mercantilist power that wants to reshape the region and the world around its aspirations as all rising powers have always done throughout human history there's no rule nothing really um untoward there is something untoward <laughs> about it but there's nothing unusual about um, a rising power want to shape global affairs uh you know we have the one belt one road initiative which is basically china's approach to using its economic leverage uh, which is in over 60 countries and it covers two-thirds of the world's population you have made in china 2025 which is china's attempt to become uh, the hegemonic power when it comes to advanced manufacturing with robotics and AI, uh, and they still benefit from a developing nation's status under WTO rules, which basically allows it to engage in um, trade practices that wouldn't be available to um, non-developing nations and allows it to skirt around the Paris Climate Agreement and other such agreements which gives, gives it a uh, international competitive advantage. Uh, more broadly, the point is... You know, there was two competing theses at the end of the Cold War. There was the Francis Fukuyama end of history argument that, um, you know, basically history had ended and that all nations would eventually converge to liberal democracies. Denmark. Yeah, well, everything Denmark. would come we all like Denmark. Denmark yep. um, basically, economic liberalisation would bring political liberalisation in China and, you know, it might take some time and there might be some nations that remain mired in history, but at some point we'll all converge to the same endpoint. And then the competing thesis was really Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations. And we are clearly in the clash of civilizations, not the end of history. Um, and that is the main way to think about this. And I think, you know, we talked about Trump at the start. One of Trump's enduring legacies will be elevating China as a, as a matter of discussion and elevating the threat that China poses. We talked about a lot of the opportunities that China presents, but um, elevating China's practices and, the, and, and their ambitions with One Belt, One Road made in China 2025 um, are serious concerns and um, we should be addressing those. Yeah, I, I want to dispute, though, the clash of civilizations. I mean, we talk about history and, and uh, it is an occasion to reflect. 70 years ago is, is not long. Mm. It's not very long at all. 
and um, there was nothing inevitable about the IPA the com- is older than the Chinese Communist Party. Indeed, uh, and, well, older than the People's Republic. People's not, Republic, yeah, not, not not the party itself. Um, you know, uh, China was a classic example of the collision of modernity with you know a very backward. Uh, country and hence you know the legacy of colonialism and all these things but the fact is there was an alternative which was the nationalists uh, under Chiang Kai-shek um, uh, they were allies of Australia and America uh, that was a legitimate Chinese government um, uh, certainly uh, uh, de facto uh, up until 1949 when the, the communists took over the country and uh, you know de jure until until the 70s when America and Australia finally uh, had to acknowledge that, and uh, and, and uh, the PRC took the seat at the United Nations. The nationalists under uh, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, they fought essentially for 20 years. Uh, they lost. Uh, the American support of them waxed and waned. Um, you know, Eisenhower campaigned saying that the Democrats basically lost China, and I, I think there's some truth to that. Uh, they were profoundly ambivalent. I mean, the the nationalists were not a pretty regime at all. Uh, in, in some ways, Chiang Kai-shek was, was head of a group of warlords rather than a, an actual functioning government. They never managed to establish legitimacy. But, of course, in, you know, in American eyes, these were bad things, uh, which they are. But, I mean, this, this was a country coming out of modernity. It was terribly poor, um, completely agrarian, uh, massive peasant population. And it's certainly been modernised under the PRC... Uh, tens of millions of people died during those forcible modernisations of, of you know, Great Leap Forward and, and others. But there is an alternative history to China. I mean, Chiang Kai-shek uh, eventually retreated to the island of Taiwan. The nationalists took over. The GDP of Taiwan is now three times that of mainland China. So um, in terms of the class of civilizations, uh, there's certainly a geopolitical clash, but I would that we should never fall prey to the idea that there is something unique in the Chinese character or Confucian no, no, right. civilization. And I'm not saying you're, I'm not saying you did say this, Dan. I'm just um, you get this meme, which is that there's something unique in you know we must understand Chinese civilization and its unique ways. This, in many ways, plays into the CCCP's hands. No, I, I was because I, because there is an alternative future for China. Hong Hong Kong shows what culture can look like after 170 years of exposure to the West. Taiwan today, sh- a, a peaceful democratic republic shows an alternative and, to... And that's right. And that's what's the amazing thing about Taiwan um, is that... <laughs> so I, I was there a, a year or so ago um, uh, at a blockchain thing, of course, but the um, uh, function, the evening function, had some local mayor or some local governor or something like that giving a standard speech. But the first thing he opened with was, welcome to free democratic China. Yes, like, yes. yes. <laughs> because China, China I, I actually really love Chinese culture and Chinese food and Chinese liberals who I've met a number in mainland China and elsewhere, of course. And and there is a Chinese liberalism and there is an alternative path to this, but it's an alternative path that is completely blocked by the absolute totalitarian dominance of the Communist Party. Mm. And it's, it's getting worse, um, I think, not better. Um, and so one, one aspect of this um, we've seen uh, is in uh, the, the Catholic Church. Uh, and so, uh, you know, historically there's been two churches, um, you know, two Catholic churches uh, in China. Uh, one has been sort of the, um, the Chinese Patriotic Catholic Association, which is kind of the government-sanctioned 
uh, arm of the church, and the other one is the actual real church, which the under you know which operates underground uh, and really in the shadows. And you know, there's there's been a long history of religious persecutions in China. Um, and you know, there's been a bishop, uh, a Catholic bishop, that's been imprisoned for something like 20 years, um, you know, for for just you know sort of preaching. Um, last year and and then into this year, we've seen an agreement between uh, the, the Vatican and uh, the, the Chinese government about a, approval of bishops uh, and, and an agreement going forward to try and unify those two. Um, uh, split groups, um, and uh, it's it's really just invested China with greater power, um, and the, the the really the the result for that is actually you know some reports have said it's actually made it worse in terms of the persecution of the underground church. So um, it'd be very interesting to see where that goes. Um, the, the other aspect, um, one way trip to the Gulag. Well, true. Um, the, the the other aspect. Um, uh, I think uh, you know it was it was clearly noticeable. Just uh, you know the the military theme uh, that was going on with the parades and those sorts of things and wheeling out their new missiles and and, and whatever. And, and the the thing that hasn't been um, focused a lot um, in the news reports that I've seen is the the space race um, that's um, been entering into. When we when we think of the space race, we sort of we we think back to the Cold War and and, and Russia versus the U.S. But um, the the Chinese are really becoming a, a power um, in, in the space race and that, that they are doing things that seem to have a exploratory you know scientific discovery purpose like putting things on the on the far side of the moon but um, I think a lot of their efforts um, that there was a, a, a white paper um, or the equivalent of a white paper released um, a few months ago uh, that really focused on space as a military exercise. And given how strategically important space is, particularly the US, um, I think we're going to see China being a lot more active uh, in space. And we will never not take the opportunity to talk about space policy on this podcast. Uh, no. Today we will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we might, though, though, very briefly just mention the um, Hong Kong developments because overnight there were um, massive um, uh, Hong Kong protests heated up really significantly. Well, um, n- nothing says state power quite like being shot point blank. Yeah, yeah. No, it, so there was a protester who was shot point blank with live ammunition, which is the um, uh, which is may may well be a first in that. So it's heating up. But there's um, footage of uh, Hong Kong protesters throwing eggs at posters of um, Mao and um, symbols of the Chinese communist regime um so as we as we um uh, rue the 70th anniversary of the communist party in china um we have to know that th- this is a lived history right now this is something that um we are now seeing in uh, a a world historical moment will a one of the great free cities of the western world survive and obviously we wanted to, but... Um, <laughs> no, no, we're, uh, we're pro-free city survival, yes. Uh, yeah, it's That's very, the official podcast position. It's a very tough environment, but uh, how brave of them to, to challenge the regime on this, uh, what for them was a very special day. Uh, we have come to that part of the show where we uh, talk about various books and, uh, and our culture picks. Um, Aaron, you have a book there. 
I, I do. Um, so the aforementioned I, book of political cartoons. I, I, I sometimes feel on this um, on this podcast that uh, th- this this segment for me is always challenging because I've been so just in in depth in my PhD that I, I hardly read anything or watch anything that hasn't been related to that. Um, and and now that I've finally you know submitted the thing, um, I haven't felt like uh, doing much. Um, uh, so that that's that's uh, somewhat of an excuse. Um, but um, uh, I, I sort of looked at this segment as a bit of show and tell this week. Uh, okay. And um, <laughs> this uh, is a podcast. What have you, you painted? Know? Well, <laughs> exactly. paint me a visual, um, a, a verbal so image. I'm, I'm, I'm going to paint you a visual. And, and so th- th- this is a book that's come back into my life. Um, so it's it's best Australian political t- cartoons. 2005, yes, that's right, you got the year correct, 2005, edited by Russ Radcliffe, and, and he's done the, the whole range, he's still producing these things. Um, and, and how it's come back into my life is um, my mum was cleaning up uh, an old bookcase at my parents' house and saved everything she thought that I would still want. Uh, and so this and was that's in a, all that you got. And, and, and so this was in a box of books. And I, and I opened it up um, uh, thinking about that year. The, you know, 2005 for me was year 12. Um, I'd, um, uh, I was a young liberal. I joined a political party a sort of a year, you know, a year prior. And um, I was flicking through it and just um, uh, got struck by the more things change, you know, the, the more they stay the same. And um, I'm, I'm looking uh, now, and I'll describe it, um, but the, there's a cartoon here, uh, two big uh, sort of chairs uh, and in, in what looks uh, like an official building in Washington featuring uh, the Prime Minister and the President. And, and so we've got John Howard um, sitting there, um, uh, holding papers uh, about the Iraq war and an exit strategy. And we've got George W. Bush looking on, um, you know, trying to console uh, John Howard about things. Um, and and, and that, that, that appears in another scene where, um, you know, John Howard is looking quite disturbed and, you know, George W. says, you know, what's, what's wrong? And he's like, oh, it's the, it's the ashes, you know. And, and so <laughs> it, 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 it for me was, well, okay, um, the, 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 the Australian media had this fascination between, um, I guess, the, the role that um, the, the Australian Prime Minister and the, and the relationship the Australian Prime Minister has with that US president, particularly when we've got a Liberal Prime Minister and a Republican president. And that was something that um, John Howard was criticised a lot by people, you know, particularly like um, Mark Latham uh, at, at the time, you know, for um, I guess, you know, for just following along whatever being the lap- con- yeah, conga, being line a, a conga line of suckles. Conga line of suckles. <laughs> that was the famous. That was the famous line. Um, but th- th- there were some other. Um, th- th- there were some other great things on um, on Beasley's. Um, you know, grappling Kim, with Kim Beasley. Uh, Kim Beasley, uh, who was the opposition leader at the time, uh, who was grappling with. Uh, you know, Labor's policy on tax cuts, you know, <laughs> that seems to be pretty familiar. Um, and then we've got a lot of discussion with Amanda Vanstone, the former immigration minister, uh, on um, uh, on immigration and, and refugees and detention centres, and um, you know it's um it's it's a it's a fascinating uh, it was a fascinating sort of review of that year for me um, in, in what what we were talking about. Um, you know, all those years ago. Is that just a is that just a reflection of the fact that the, the political topics are always going to be the same? They're always going to be around how much should we tax? What what should our immigration policy look like? Um, what should we spend the money on? Um, should we um, go into military conflict 
with our allies or not? Is, is that just the nature of it, or is there? Do you reckon there's a deeper? more stubborn pattern to Australian politics over time. I, I think there's a fascination about particular issues. I think that uh, there are some particular issues that have really dominated the imagination over the last 20 years. And, um, yeah, they, they don't seem to be going away. No, the US alliance certainly isn't going anywhere. Uh, I, might, I might go next. Uh, this, this is a 2012 book, but it's by an author who's just died, so it's, it's topical. And... Um, uh, for this, because uh, today's podcast is being filmed, uh, I'll hold this book up. Uh, it's by an anthropologist called Napoleon Chagnon, and uh, if you think I'm butchering the translation, he is in fact from Michigan, so uh, <laughs> it's, it's Chagnon. And, um, Chagnon. Don't, don't ask me why he came up with that name, but um, uh, he was an anthropologist who came of age, uh, went through university in the 1960s. And it was so he got to do his field work in what was really sort of the last glorious period where you could. Um, uh, go out and find uh, tribes that were essentially pre-contact, uh, certainly not greatly influenced by the collision with the modern world. And he went um, and lived amongst the uh, Yanomamo uh, Indians in uh, which are across uh, Brazil and Venezuela, and produced uh, field uh, books of field research uh, on them. Uh, he famously labelled them the fierce people. And uh, he wrote this book, it's called Noble Savages, My Life Among Two Dangerous Tribes, the Anamamo and the Anthropologists. And this was a, is a great book. It's absolutely fascinating and it goes to the heart of so many intellectual uh, and social debates that we have right down to social justice, wokeness, the, you know, the whole thing. Uh, because, uh, so as I say, he started in the 1960s when the field was dominated by Margaret Mead and this sort of noble savage view of what native peoples were like. Um, this, you know, it's a classic contrast. It's either Rousseau and the noble savage or it's, you know, Hobbes. You know, life was poor, nasty, brutish and short. Um, Chagnon is very much Hobbesian. You know, he expected to go and see. Aren't we all? He expected to go, go go see people. You know, living in harmony and um, being unfussed about uh, premarital relations or even postmarital relations. Unsullied and, by the commercial. Yeah, uh, all world. of all of that. Uh, the oppressive, you know, white culture and so on. And what he found was they were incredibly violent and they killed people. And you know, there were a lot of fights, and a lot of the fights started over over women and uh, who had access to women and whether or not women were perceived to be straying, uh, very much a traditional tribal society. And he wrote about this. And, and so it was controversial from the start. And it, a lot of this field research fed into what was the emerging field of, of sociobiology, evolutionary biology, the idea that human behaviour um, uh, could be explained a lot by reference to the desire um, to maintain, you know, bloodlines essentially, whether consciously or otherwise, our our genetic, you know, trying to preserve our gene pool. So uh, you would go to war with those in your kin groups against those who are not in your kin groups, and this is this is what drives small pre-political societies. You know, the, the famous number of like roughly 150 is about the limit that these tribal so societies can um, organise under a, a big man, and then. When cultural anthropology, and this is the second half of the book, it's amongst the other dangerous tribe, which is the anthropologists. As <laughs> cultural anthropology took over the field, you know, essentially Marxists, uh, as he calls them, I think with, with some, you know, and, and he's right, um, they, they fought back against this. So as, as far back as the 70s, their weapons were deplatforming 
uh, trying to get people fired, uh, to be driven out of the field of anthropology. Uh, and so Shagnon's work, as I say, uh, was important to the intellectual field. He's a hero to people like Steven Pinker, uh, Matt Ridley, who's written uh, books on, on this, the great Matt Ridley. Um, it's an ongoing battle. Of course, it's not an ongoing battle in anthropology anymore because that has been completely taken over uh, by, uh, by the groups that were attacking Chagnon. But, you know, if you read through, say, the, uh, the articles that now have to appear on Quillette, say, um, this idea of sociobiology, evolutionary psychology and so on, a lot of this is traceable back uh, to Chagnon. Uh, he died uh, just in the last uh, week or so. Um, in, in his 80s, so he's, he survived that experience, but not without some, some bitterness at having to spend the last 30 years of his life being accused. What they did was they tried to destroy his reputation by accusing him of terrible things. So it's not just uh, an interesting intellectual exercise, it also tells you a lot about how the social justice warriors actually work inside academic fields and destroy them from within. What, what, why didn't they like him? What was it that... Oh, because... Um, what was it about his work in particular? Because, well, what, what they want to say is... Well, first of all, they challenged his idea of anthropology. He had this strange idea that an anthropologist should go and live among the people and describe what you see mm. and try and come up with coherent explanations for it. For, the, for a cultural anthropologist, the job of the anthropologist is to basically work out who has been oppressed and to take their side. So it's the classic story of oppression. And, of course, it's, it has to be anti... You have to tell a story about um, colonialism and the destruction of these societies. So if you see... Right, right. So he's meant to find peaceful, you know, a peaceful yep. surrounding and everyone's corrupted he, by He's meant West to find an uncorrupted, non-commercial, yeah. communistic... Non-violent. Non-violent and everything's, everything's beautiful and perfect. Because the whole point... The entire point of that intellectual exercise has nothing to do with studying the societies and everything to, del to do with identifying why we, in the, the modern present, are bad. Mm. Yeah, and, and of course they, they, they believe that um, the view that the, some of these societies are violent, they practice, uh, say, infanticide, um, they go on raiding parties against other tribes. Uh, as an aside, by the way, there's a great book, believe it or not, uh, by Tim Flannery. Uh, nothing to do with climate change. His book, Throwing Way Leg, on his experience in Papua New Guinea, where he he writes quite matter of fact, quite matter of factly about the experience of cannibalism mm. in PNG in basically protein starved environments, is is very educative. So for whatever reason, Tim Flannery didn't doesn't have a problem with actually telling the truth. But yeah, the the, the issue they have with Chagnon is that by describing th that violence might have actually been a part of the culture, you are licensing the interventions that modern Western societies might then make uh, that, say, the government of Brazil might feel, feel that they want to do something about some of these cultural practices and, and you must fight against that. So it's, it's completely political. So my book choice this week is a book that I wrote and in fact Aaron Lane wrote as he stares at me intently oh, making sure I was he, say, you better go into this. My name's on it too. <laughs> and <laughs> and our colleague Darcy Allen who I'm sure we will bully into coming onto the podcast soon enough. Um, the book is Crypto Democracy, How Blockchain Can Radically Expand Democratic Choice. It's been published by Lexington Books and came out, um, was it this month or last month? Um, last either month. way, last month, September. Um, so this is an argument that that um, Aaron Darcy and I have been developing over um, some time. But this is w what what happens if you take this 
strange technology that we study so much, blockchain, and you use it to not not to you know put votes on a blockchain or anything like that, not just to use it to manage elections, but what if you actually used it to give us ownership over our own vote in every real sense that we mean the word ownership. So right now, we say that we have a vote. We say that we own our vote. We say that we have property over that vote. But in fact, we're only allowed to exercise that vote once every four years or three years or what have you, depending on the jurisdiction. We're only allowed to um, vote for a list of people that have been nominated specifically in advance in our um, uh, electorate or in our division. And we're only and, – and once we're voted for them, even if they are terrible, we can't take our property back. We can't take our votes back. We're not allowed to buy or sell our votes. We're not able to make exchanges with our votes. We're not able to delegate our votes to someone else. Anyway, so, so once you've observed that, in fact, we have basically no property over our votes at all, well, Aaron, Darcy and I started spelling out what would it look like if we actually did have and and blockchain here is a technology that would allow us to do that but we wanted to spell out the range of democratic reforms that you could get if you actually gave people genuine ownership over their political rights and it's 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 kind of radical the menu of options and alternatives and the the democraticness of these alternatives are just just really really exciting. So this is this is a it sounds like a fairly wild um, speculative thing, and in some ways it is. But as Aaron um, has pointed out, um, in fact, you can use these for the manage. You could use this sort of structure for the management of um, corporate voting, as we already have. We could use it for unions, um, the management of community groups and organisations. Um, there's just a lot of possibility if we start to say democracy isn't just stuff that the state has given us. We have a fundamental right to an equal political say in, our, in what governs us. Um, we now have a technology that could allow us to do that. Aaron, what would you add, given that you're a co-author? Uh, what, would I, what would I add? Well, what I would add to that is that I, I think this is going to become more relevant in the digital economy and the digital environment because what we're going to be doing is, in a, in a corporate sense, um, is forming corporations, partnerships with other people that are not necessarily in the same place um, at, at the same time. And that requires um, a, a different level of technology. And it also pushes back, I think, on this idea that, um, that the, you know, to, to get better corporate governance, we need more central regulation. Or, and, and, that's, and that's the same with the union movement as well. We you know, need bureaucrats right, to we need, observe we need the culture of our bureaucrats board, yeah. to police that we need you know, more, uh, more sort of staff at the, uh, you know, the ASIC and, and those sort of regulatory bodies. Th this provides really a, a strong counter-narrative, which is no, actually, what we need is, we, we do need better governance. You know, there are big corporate problems out there. We've seen that with the various royal commissions into the union movement, into the, the financial sector and so on. There are big corporate problems out there, but the answer isn't um, that we need to over-regulate those things. The actual answer is we need to give decision making back to the people that should be making uh, and, and should be exercising those decisions. And you know. I, I just have one question, which is um, in terms of property rights in votes, I, th I think of like 17th and 18th, 18th century Britain when the 
when the franchise was very narrow and, you know, the borough of Old Sarum had seven and votes it be, in it. It would be hereditary. There, there, were, there, so were, forth, there yeah. were fantastic levels of bribery. I mean, it was a it was a property right for those guys. You know, they they, they sold out to the highest <laughs> no, no, bidder. And, and so, so is, is, is that what you envisage yeah. under this model? Look, look, I'm I'm because you know, I, I, could be a nice little learner. No, <laughs> I'm I'm of two minds about this. I actually think I, I don't think that there are as many problems with buying and selling votes as some people think. But even if you accept that there are, there are new mechanisms that would allow you to both buy and sell votes and not to hoard those votes and one of them has been developed by um, a fellow called Glenn Weil who's now at Microsoft I think he is. Um, I think so. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, and he's developed something called quadratic voting which makes every subsequent vote that you purchase more expensive. Now whether that's um, precisely how you would choose to do it, what is exciting about this and the more general point that I want to make is that we are in a position now to rethink some of the um, democratic structures that we have. And there's a demand for it, which is why plebiscites, which is why people's votes um, in the context of Brexit, in the context of the same-sex marriage debate, are such in demand. People want to feel more in control of the democratic yeah. governance that rule yeah, them. That, Bre and that Brexit really worked out, didn't it? And it radically lowers the cost of doing that. I mean, you know, the, the plebiscite, um, you know, well, how, how many... Do they just ignore it. Yeah, well, <laughs> true. But, uh, you know, how, how, how many, you know, millions of dollars are spent on those sorts of things administratively? Um, you, could, you could vote far more often. Vote better and more often. Awesome. Vote, vote early, vote often. Dan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't know how to segue, so I'll just say. Uh, <laughs> just go ahead, mate. Yeah, I'm just trying to stay awake. Uh, the, <laughs> the, blockchain, uh, blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. Oh, the uh, <laughs> grand final was on in the footy on uh, footy on uh, Saturday, and it was probably one of the worst grand finals in in a long time. Uh, I think probably the more recent one was Port getting hammered by Geelong. Not so long ago, and this was right up there with almost something as bad as that. I think it was the third GWS had the third lowest score, I believe, in AFL history in a grand final. So that was pretty exciting. A uh, pretty exciting <laughs> game. It was good for one quarter, and then the three next quarters were pretty bad. So, uh, but I won't uh, sort of regale you with tales of the of how boring it was. Instead, I thought it was interesting to talk about GWS as a club, and so we see. So GWS is a AFL club in it's called Greater Western Sydney, so it's located in, in the west of Sydney. Um, and then you've also got another club, which is Gold Coast, obviously located on the Gold Coast. And the reason this is interesting is because you had the VFL, which had been going for 100 odd years. And then in 1990, you had the AFL, which basically meant it expanded outside of Victoria. Um, and then you had clubs in, you had Adelaide, um, West Coast and Sydney were the three and Brisbane. So they were the, the four clubs outside of Victoria. Now they've all done, they've all been very successful in terms of financially viable and their ability to win games and win premierships. So that's been a success. Um, the problem for the AFL has been the addition of second clubs and, the, and the, to those states, you've got then Port Adelaide, Fremantle, Greater Western Sydney and Gold Coast. Now, both Port and Frio have done okay. Um, well, Port's done very well, as much as I hate to say it. Um, and Frio's done okay, they're still viable. The two areas where they haven't succeeded is in um, New South Wales and in Queensland with their second clubs. And that's because there is not really a culture of AFL in those areas. There's only just enough to sustain Sydney and Brisbane. Uh, Brisbane doesn't do that. Like Brisbane fans don't rock up when the team's not winning. Like they're just there for the success. And yeah. same with Sydney. Right, so they struggle. Same there's, with no, there's no well, identity. Part but they still, no. Yeah, but I mean, you still got like 100,000 members for Richmond, <laughs> you know, as an example. True enough. Um, or even Cal when they're, or Carlton's got 60,000 and they've been absolutely rubbish. Yeah, so they're still, they're still mm. viable even when they're 
doing ba- badly. So this is an example of like a central authority trying to artificially create <laughs> something where there is yep. no culture to support but isn't, it. It's, but, it's but, like, but isn't this so they lost? But isn't this precisely evidence on on the no, other direction? They no. got. Okay, it's go not. On. It's not because Look, I, I'm in no position to no, argue no, no. this. No, no, no. That would be that would be what you would originally think, right? But you got to understand the AFL has completely stacked the deck in favour of GWS for years and years and years. Like if the, if if um, the AFL didn't assist GWS financially and with um, priority draft picks and other favours, there's no way they'd get anywhere near the finals, right? They'd be at the bottom. So they've gone out of the way to try and help Gold Coast and GWS by augmenting the competition to favour them, right? It's just complete socialism. It's and, and taking you- from successful clubs. <laughs> giving to non-existent, unsuccessful clubs, and then they still are terrible. They can't even get fans to the game. They're not financially viable. The AFL should just give up on the idea of trying to artificially create a culture where there is none. Well, and just let, particularly let where they've had to... Um, just play rugby. I mean, they have a sport. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's, they play rugby, we play you footy. You have a football thing. Yeah, yeah. They play rugby, we play footy, we all play cricket. What's wrong with that? <laughs> exactly. you know? That's particularly true when um, uh, Gold Coast have received another bailout package, you know, only this week. And um, But I think the problem with this is that there's no sort of destruction mechanism. In other leagues like, you know, the, the Premier League, you know, for soccer and those sorts of things, um, you know, sides that finish on the bottom of the ladder get relegated down to the the bottom league and you know perhaps that's because you know there's not enough leagues um but i think if you had a situation where there was some sort of incentive to keep in there because at the moment if you finish on the bottom of the ladder you get you just get you know topped up with, with extra stuff i would love the idea that if you're at the bottom of the ladder maybe 3 years in a row then your club is eliminated and it's redistributed its assets redistributed <laughs> to the other clubs and someone gets to bid for a new club uh, <laughs> pick, pick over the carcass <laughs> anything anything to improve the situation now, there you go another great That's poli- competition another great policy proposal put to you by looking forward a podcast of the ipa if you want to learn more about it join or donate please do go to ipa.org.au a big thank you to our panellists today, Dr. Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Daniel Wild. Thank you. And Aaron Lane. It's been my distinct pleasure. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very, very uh, statesmanlike there, Aaron. And, of course, a big thank you to our producers today, uh, Josh Stranger and Saul Muscatel, I think, is in the house as well. Great to have you. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.